Welcome to another episode of Chic Compass Connection. This podcast will give you a glimpse into the window of the popular Chic Compass magazine, where we feature art, music, design, fashion, dining, and all things chic for the culture-starved audiences of the world. To view our magazine online, visit chiccompass.com. That's C-H-I-C-C-O-M-P-A-S-S dot com. We would also like to thank the Vegas Room in the Historic Commercial Center in Las Vegas, Nevada, for inviting us to their supper club to broadcast our show. I'm your host, Jamie Hosmer. Let's introduce today's guest. Michael Peterson is a million-selling, Grammy-nominated country music star whose songs have hit number one on the charts 13 times, including the fourth most popular country wedding song of all time, From Here to Eternity and also the iconic Drink, Swear, Steal, and Lie. Michael has written songs that have been recorded by Hall of Famers and Grammy winners in multiple music genres, including people like Travis Tritt, Timothy B. Schmidt of the Eagles, pop superstar Denise Williams, the Imperials, and many, many more. He is also a contributing author for eight books, including the number one New York Times bestselling Chicken Soup for the Soul series, Michael has received the prestigious Bob Hope Spirit of Hope Medal from the USO following his 11 tours and over 150 performances for servicemen and women deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, and South Korea. Michael Peterson, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jamie. Thank you, man. You read that just the way I told you. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, it's, it's very impressive just to read that. Um, obviously... The, the 13, uh, 13 number one hits that you've had uh, in and of themselves, but also your achievements, 150 performances for the USO. That's amazing. 11 tours. Well, yeah, thank you. I, you know, there's a, there's a couple of different um, organizations that help to ensure that servicemen and women uh, deployed uh, receive a touch from home. Uh, one of them is the USO. That's the one that people are most familiar with. And I did a, I did a tour with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs that is a Christmas holiday tour in 2005, which was pretty cool because we got to fly on Air Force Two uh, <laughs> all around the world, which was pretty neat. But um, following that first tour I did with the chairman, I said to General Pace on the way ho- flying home, I said, you know, that's great that we did these shows over there, but... Uh, aren't there a lot of servicemen and women that never get uh, anybody to come out where they are because there's not enough people there? And he said, oh yeah, that's most of them. And I said to him, well, um, I'd like to be that guy that goes where where other people, you know, where they don't get entertainment. And he said, well, you know what that means? I said, no. He said, well, it means you're basically jumping on a Black Hawk helicopter and and you're flying out somewhere where you, you might have one or two or three people in the audience. You don't really have a good PA and uh, and it's it's really like sleeping in tents and stuff. I said, sign me up. So um, there's an organization called MWR, which stands for Morale, Welfare, and Recreation, and that's kind of the Army's version of the USO, if you will. It's that it's that that arm of the Army that uh, helps ensure that morale, welfare, and recreation are stay at you know at a at a sustainable uh, a level to help service members retain their resilience. So most of the shows that I did uh, were with MWR, 
over there. But just, I'm saying that for listeners because the distinction, you know, is uh, it's one that many people don't know about. Is that that within the uh, military, each branch has their own sort of version of that. And the USO, although you know, service members are grateful for the USO, it's only one of the couple of different platforms that they do that with. Wow. There's another one, Arm, Armed Forces Entertainment. It's called AFE that also uh, takes service, people, entertainers around the world. Wow. Well, kudos to you for entertaining our troops. It's, uh, that's, it's amazing. Um, well, it changed my life. I mean, really, honestly, it changed my whole perspective on what it means to be an entertainer. You know, um, the paradigm that I, you know, experienced in Nashville about what it meant to be an entertainer was, you know, you had to build a name for yourself with hits so that when you hit the stage, everybody was ready to hear your hits. And you kind of walked out with that as your platform. And if you take that to its extreme, you know, there's people that don't need an introduction. You know, all you'd have to do if you went to see Johnny Carson when you were a kid was they'd say, here's Johnny, right? And everybody everybody knew that came loaded with that, that, that uh, backdrop. And so you hit the stage and people love you already. But with the time that I started going to Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, would have been 2005, I hadn't had a, a big radio hit uh, at that point in six years. And m- most of the men and women that I were perform- was performing for over there were, you know, between 18 and 22 years of age. So they may or may not have known who I, who I was mm. in country music. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you, you know, many times uh, early on... It, I learned a couple of good lessons early on. We started showing up at these um, these little, little uh, forward operating bases, and uh, we would have our shows because they wouldn't have a theater, so our shows would take place in like a a makeshift theater, like a you know a modular somewhere mm-hmm. that was normally a meeting room or something. Okay, and they'd put some posters around, and and we'd show up for these shows, and there'd be you know, half a dozen people that would show up. And I'm exaggerating here a little bit for the sake of the story, but not too much. Uh, We'd have a very small crowd and a good portion of them would be sitting there with their arms folded with a look on their face that kind of gave you the impression that this was the last place they wanted to be. Wow. So after, after two or three of those shows, I said to the person who was my escort over there, I said, you know, um, this reminds me a lot of when I was doing school assemblies and they would ask me to go speak to speak to, to speak to students, you know, let's say a bunch of middle schoolers who are in detention. You know, go fix those kids. <laughs> right. You know, and you walk in the room and it's like that you can just feel that attitude. And I just I said to him, I said, I don't understand really what's going on here, because this, you know, I do my best, but I feel like I'm pulling teeth. You were feeling uh underappreciated really you were feeling like well you know not it was it was not even that because i my ego is i'm pretty i'm pretty secure person Mm -hmm. what i was feeling was there was a dynamic going on that was making it difficult for me to reach them okay not that i was feeling underappreciated it was just feeling like wow i love sharing these special moments with people and for some reason there's this big wall that i can't get through so uh, i was told you know sort of off the record if you will that um, what was happening was that a lot of these men and women didn't know who I was. But but more than that, um, they were living pretty tough lives. Mm. You know, they're out kicking down doors all day. 
and they're basically living, you know, living out in the desert, right? Uh, in a d- very difficult, dangerous situation. And so, you know, if they don't really know who you are, the last thing they want to do is go see a show. Like, all they want to do is, you know, go get some grub, get some rest, call home, right? So, so you know, their their uh, sergeant, and I say that in general terms because it could have been a, any one of their senior leaders didn't want the uh, the major or the colonel who was in charge of that post to be embarrassed because nobody showed up. Okay. So what I found out was that, you know, every everywhere we were going early on, uh, a lot of these men and women were basically ordered to be there. Oh, wow. And it was, and it, it was something that they called mandatory fun. Wow. And so I said, uh, well, that sucks. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not good for anybody. You know, and that's what's wrong. So I said, there's got to be a better way to do it than that. And so um, we, we brainstormed a while and I said, well, where, where, do most, where do most people hang out on post? And they said, well, most people are going to see the most people at the dining facility. And I said, well, what would, what would it be like if, if, if we just forgot about trying to do a show? Like, forget about, like, you know, lights, camera, action, pull a curtain back, uh-huh. big introduction. Mm-hmm. You know, for, let's for, just forget that paradigm. I said, what if, what, what if you just, you know, I had a little PA that I traveled with. It was a, fit in a golf bag. Okay. Right? So what, what if you just put me in a DFAC, the dining facility, okay, and put me in a corner somewhere on a little riser? And I don't, I don't want an introduction. I don't, I don't want to make any big deal about it. You don't have to make any announcements. Just put me in the dining facility when there's going to be a lot of people likely to be coming and going. Mm. I said, and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to get up and start playing. Mm. I'm going to be a guy with a guitar with a cowboy hat on in the middle of Iraq or Afghanistan. Okay. Okay. If that doesn't get your attention that there's something going on, nothing will, right? But the thing is, what it did was it removed this pressure on these service members to, to number one, they didn't have to stay if they didn't want. Right. Or if they hadn't heard about it or didn't know what it was, they could stay if they wanted to. So we went from having, you know, a half a dozen people who didn't want to be there to having hundreds of people that stayed, laughed, had fun. Because I figured at that point, if my talent wasn't enough to engage them, you know, like, let me just get up and sing and play something from home. Yep. I mean, you get up on a stage and you start singing, Almost Heaven, West Virginia. Yeah. You know, um, the songs people know and love, yeah. and uh, and it's something different, and it's something out of the ordinary, and it's breaks a routine for them. And boy, you know, I, it was just over the next roughly nine years, and 150 uh, performances, and you know, 11 tours. That became our st- stock and trade. Was you know there was no pressure on anybody. Mm-hmm. Give me a space. Let me set up. Let me play. Let me tell funny stories to whoever is really listening. Right. And, uh, and man, it just, it just ch- completely changed the paradigm for me. And, and I think to this day, when I get in front of an audience, you know, in the, in the, in the normal paradigm, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. where it's, you know, more, more of a show, yeah. like you think the way people think about a show, you know, what I'm always looking for is that... <clears throat> Way to share a space with an audience where we're all at, e- at ease. Yes. And we, we laugh together and we, you know, I tell funny stories or at least I try to be funny, you know, 
And I try to create a dialogue, this kind of exchange with the audience to where it's not like it's a show, like you go watch a movie and you're seeing something in two dimensions on the screen. I want to create an experience for people, you know? And and uh, quite frankly, selfishly, I want to create an experience for me. Right. You know, so when that starts to roll, it's magic. Yeah. And nothing and nothing can compare to it truly. Um, and uh, And I know that's a very long sort of rabbit hole to go down off of just the introduction, but I just... I just think foundationally, if you want to know a little bit about who I am and where I come from, um, you know, I, I grew up singing in church and music always had a meaning and a purpose to it. So you grew up- And it was up, never just about the music, you, grew you know, up, it was about- You grew up in Arizona? Well, no, I grew up in Washington State. You grew State. up in Washington State. And and so yeah. let's let's talk about that. You say you grew up in church. Yeah. Well, I, I shouldn't say I grew up in church, but let's say late in my late teens and, and through my 20s and, and my early 30s, I was really involved with church. So I was a worship leader at church and, and I was writing a lot of music for that purpose. And the reason I brought that up was just to say, you're writing and you're creating for a purpose. And the purpose isn't to have people clap. The purpose is to make some kind of a interpersonal difference in people's lives. So when I got to Nashville... And suddenly it was just about making people clap. You know, it was that was a big shift for me. Well, let's let's you know, I remember let's I was doing there. a show with Merle Haggard and and uh this, you know, I got up the microphone wasn't working, and this big biker guy, I'm I'm tapping on the microphone, check, check, check. You know, I'm opening up for Merle Haggard. I'm a little nervous anyway. And uh finally the microphone pops on and the guy can hear me saying, check one, two, three. And this guy, big biker guy, about five rows back, he looked like he's a hell's angel. He stood he stood up and pointed his finger at me and sh- and shouted, Shut up and sing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very different paradigms, you know. Well let let's let's rewind just a minute because you said uh, you brought up Nashville. And so w- what I want to ask you now is how did you go from Washington state uh, being a worship leader? And how did you go from there to going to Nashville and becoming uh, one of the, the top Nashville writers uh, of your time? How did that happen? Well, um, I was uh in college and uh, played football in college. And a guy that was my quarterback in college, after we got out of college, uh, I started traveling, doing ministry stuff. And I thought, you know, I would like to have a record to sell when I sing. So, uh, so I asked this friend of mine, I played college football with to produce this record for me. Cause he was the only guy I knew in the music business. He worked at a tiny little record label. So we made this record together. And uh, about a year later, he started dating uh, the pop star Denise Williams. Oh, got it. Wow. So um, they, you know, she asked him one day when they were on a date, um, you know, what do you know about music? And he said, Well, I, you know, made, I produced this album for this friend of mine from college, Michael Peterson. So he played her the album. She loved the album, and they decided that she was going to. This was right when Let's Hear It for the Boy was a smash. Okay. Okay. So right in the middle of that, they decided that uh, she wanted to make a, a gospel record, something that reflected her faith and not just not just uh, be a pop star. Mm-hmm. So they started a little production company called uh, Gateway Music House, and uh, they went after a record deal for her. So they signed me at that time as a staff writer and as, a, as an artist they were going to manage. Okay. 
So that was how I really went from being, you know, just a guy who made a record who was out singing in churches to, you know, having a, a record deal. So I got a record deal with Sparrow. I put out a record with them and, uh, and you know, off I went. And I, I wrote my first cuts as a professional writer were for me, obviously. But then I also had several songs that Denise recorded. Okay. So it was kind of, it was in my 20s. I was on my way. And, uh, and I guess the short version of the story is that the record wasn't commercially successful. And, you know, the train left the station and only went to the next town. You know, it didn't go, <laughs> but that's, it didn't that, go all that the way. Was so, the, that was the EP. That was the beginning. That was the EP released on Sparrow Records, right? Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Which had a lot of heavyweight musicians on. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in the <clears throat> studio with, I'm, I'm at George Tobin Studios in North Hollywood, uh, you know, which to me, I knew what that was. That was Betty Davis Eyes. Yep. Uh, Kim Carnes. That was Kim Carnes. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, uh, it was Pablo Cruz. It was Ambrosia. Lots and it of was, big records. I mean, it was all, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and uh, and you know, and I'm stay in the studio, and in walks Carlos Vega, <laughs> you know, and Larry Williams and Jay Gruska. Wow. And, and you know, I mean, and the list is long longer than that. But oh yeah, um, it was just you know, and then Denise is you know singing a cameo on my record. Okay. And, and you know, it's just it was pretty heady stuff for me at that time. But even you know? though that song wasn't quote unquote. A commercial success it that album yeah that album laid the foundation for yeah. what was to come i bet well it did you know so um i started having a sense that you know maybe i had a opportunity to make a living here so you know record deal went away management deal went away publishing deal went away mm-hmm. and uh and i just you know i it was that was the push i needed to start that snowball rolling down the hill so over the next i would say that was 80 485, something like that, 86. Okay. And from then, you know, almost the next 10 years, um, I wrote, I mean, I really set my mind to developing as a writer. And I wrote 25 or 30 songs a year. And, you know, the only people that liked them were my friends and they had to, or the beer stayed in the refrigerator, <laughs> right? You know, but, but I was just eat up with it. So in the process of that, I started visiting Nashville, you know, once every couple of years, I just want to go check out the scene. And, uh, but I was writing pop, 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 uh, gospel music really. Okay. And making records. And there was this guy named Roby Duke and Roby was a successful gospel artist and a really a cool guy. And one day he said to me, um, he said, you know, why, why are you writing all this pop music? He said, you're, you know, you wear cowboy boots. You, you, you like country music. He said, why don't you start going to Nashville? So, you know, uh, about the same time, a friend of mine came back from a convention and said, I want to take you to lunch. So he said he wanted to talk to me about something. So at lunch, he told me that he'd been at this convention in Dallas, and he'd seen these two guys, Joe Diffie and Colin Ray. <laughs> and, and, he's, and he said to me, and I don't say this to brag, I'm just saying this is what he said to me. He said, you're as good as those guys. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like, wow, that's wild. So then... Um, you know, without another long backstory that I won't get into here, but just suffice it to say, right around in that two or three week period where a friend of mine told me I need to go to Nashville uh, at lunch, another friend of mine told me I should be writing country music, um, a gospel song that I had written for the Imperials, well, I had written it for myself, but it had been recorded by the Imperials, uh, went to number one. Mm-hmm. So it was like it was like all of this kind of coincided in a way that was that was green lights on the highway of life. And I thought, okay, I need to start going to Nashville. So 
I went to Nashville after having not gone for a couple of years. And my first trip there, I met this guy who turned out he was executive vice president of BMG. Okay. And he gave me his card, told me to come see him. So I, I went to see him and, uh, and I had my guitar. I was getting ready to get my guitar out. And he said, no, I don't, no, you, I don't want you to play for me. I'm like, well, that's odd. <laughs> he asked me to come see him. What's he want? And he, so he said to me, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, how often do you come to Nashville? I said, well, that's the first time I've been here in a couple of years. He said, well, I'll tell you what, nobody's going to take you seriously if you don't um, present yourself seriously, mm. you know? And so um, one. Good. So um, he said, you know, nobody's going to take you seriously <clears throat> if you come here once every couple of years. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, if, if you make a commitment to start being here a lot, um, I'll see what I can do to help you. Mm. And so, uh, so I went home. Um, I looked at all my frequent flyer miles I'd been gathering up. And I thought, you know, this is really what I want to do. So what that led to was over the period of about the next little over two years, I went to Nashville a week a month. Okay. So I went for two years a week a month, roughly. And during that time, I hung out at, you know, when I would go, I'd, let's say, come in on a Saturday, and I'd get a cheap hotel room and a cheap rent-a-car. And I would, first thing I would do is go down to the local Kroger's and pick up a copy of the local music mag that t- said where all of the uh, open mics were and where all of the events were going to be happening. Mm-hmm. And I would get out my, my calendar for the week, and I'd plan my week. And, and there wasn't one night that I wouldn't be, you know... Um, standing right there uh, in some kind of an open mic setting or a, or a performance, just trying to learn. Okay. So over those, over those two years, uh, you know, I met a lot of people. I started writing uh, with other people that were in town and uh, you know, kind of one thing led to another and, and I got an offer from a, uh, from a publisher, EMI. I I got a publishing offer and you know, some funny stories around that, but I mean, essentially that's how I went from being in Seattle to be in, in Nashville. Uh, and I said, I wouldn't move there until I had a deal in place. Okay. So I just kept flying back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And when, when they made me an offer, I said, okay, this is it. I'm going. So I sold the house, packed up the family and moved to, moved to Beverly Hills, you know, <laughs> not, not, you know what I'm saying? Move, what is yeah. it? Move, move, move from Tennessee. What, what are the Beverly Hillbillies says? Oh um, yeah, right. Exactly. So, but I packed up and went the other way. I went from Washington state to, uh, to Nashville Wow, and uh, of course, when I landed, you know, uh, on the seventh of August, uh, about a week later, I found out that the president of EMI had been fired, Ooh. and uh, and and my attorney then said, "Don't sign this deal." So I had moved there, thought I had a deal, Ooh. then ended up there without a deal, which is wow. another sort of wild story. But wow. but I mean, that's how I got there. Okay, so then yeah, so there. I mean, there I was. I found myself, you know, in Nashville. Thought I had a publishing deal. Moved my whole family there. Canceled all my tour dates. Uh, wow. What am I going to do now? Wow. So that was a challenge. So now you're in Nashville. And obviously you end up getting another deal and having these massive hit songs. Um, From Here to Eternity, uh, Drink, Swear, Steal, and Lie, amongst others. Um you became a bona fide country country star. 
Um, yeah, I mean, pretty wild, right? I mean, who would have thought it? You know, I didn't, I didn't really move there for that. I, I moved there to write songs. Right. You know, but when I got my publishing deal with Warner Chapel, they said, well, we think you should be the artist. I'm like, <laughs> okay. In fact, I remember them asking me, you need to put together a, a press kit. Okay. And I said, well, why do I need a press kit? And they said, well, all these record labels are going to want to see a press kit. And I said, well, what happens next? And they said, well, you do a press kit and then, and then you do a showcase. Well, I'd been to, I'd been to enough showcases to know that that's the kiss of death. You're right. You know, because every, all these record executives and, and, you know, publishing people and music business professionals show up in an, in an artificial environment at a four o'clock in the afternoon or five o'clock in the afternoon mm. at some club, you know, to see how good you are. Mm-hmm. And they all show up with their opinionated, their opinion glasses on, you know, where they might like you if they saw you playing somewhere. Right. Now, you know, you're in this environment where, where, you know, there's all this pressure and everybody comes, you know, to make an opinion. Right. And I, I'd seen that with other people. And I just thought, man, first of all, I haven't ever really performed a lot prior to that with a band. Um, I'd never really done a show like of country music with a band. Yeah. I thought, I'm going to have a couple of rehearsals. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to be super nervous. Mm. I just, so anyway, so I, I said to the, my head of my publishing company at that point, I said, you know, I don't think it's a good idea. And he's looked at me stunned. Right. Because, because who says that, right? Right. Um, and I said, he said, well, you know, he, I remember him saying to me, like, well, do you have a better idea? And like, he didn't, those were, his exact, those were not his exact words, but that was sort of the feeling of it. I said, well, I tell you what, what I think I'm best at is just being with people. Mm-hmm. Like, where I'm more, most natural is if I can be with people and build a little bit of a relationship. And then, and then if it seems appropriate, play some music for them on my guitar, because that's what I'm most comfortable doing. Right. And if they really want to get who I am, then that's that's you know, that's me. You wanted to be able to have a conversation with the audience. Yeah, I mean seriously. I mean, you you hit the button on the on the head there. So so uh, you know, he said, "Well, okay, let's give it a try." It was certainly a lot less expensive, <laughs> right? You buy a few lunches, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, so we they started setting up these lunch appointments for me with record labels. Okay. And we'd go to lunch with the president of the record label, their head of A&R. I'd have my guitar there with me. We'd talk a little bit. And then they'd say, well, why don't you play me a few songs? Mm. And then I would sit and play them a few songs. And what came out of that was my record deal with Warner Brothers. Wow. And, uh, you know, wow. it was just, the, I, was 30, I was 36 years old when I got to Nashville. Okay. And at that, at that time, it's it maybe a little <clears throat> different now, but at that time, they, they, the the rule was, and I say rule really deliberately, mm. the rule was that if you were over 25, they wouldn't even look at you. Really? Yeah. They wouldn't even look at you. Because, the, you know, the thing is, you want to get a young artist and ride that trail for a long time. Mm. So I was already 10 years too old. Okay. And, uh, you know, didn't have a background in it. I Like, Ooh. I hadn't grown up singing in clubs and honky-tonks. And, yeah. You know, and... uh and then, you know, they wanted me to do a showcase, and I basically said no. <laughs> I mean, uh, all the things you're supposed to do, you know, I didn't do. 
And yet, you know, the funny thing is when it's, when it's, it's always no until it's yes. I tell a lot of young people, if they ever ask me, you know, my story, I say, you know, it's always no until it's yes. Yeah. And all you need is one good yes. That's right. That's right. The, the, the one thing you did do though, is you did write songs consistently. Yeah. And and I took the opportunities that were presenting themselves to me. Mm-hmm. So when my when when the guy said to me, "You need to be here in Nashville more often," I, I mean, I it wasn't easy, right? You know, it wasn't like I was rolling in money, a right. lot of money, right? But I, but I found a way to get to Nashville once a month for almost two years. You're right, exactly. And uh, and I, you know, I think that that's those those are the elements. Like if you say, well. What what are some of the principles at work when somebody becomes successful, regardless of their field of endeavor? I think one of them is just persistence. Yep. You know, persistence in every part of it that you're pursuing. You know, writing 25 or 30 songs a year. Well, that means I finished that many songs a year. I probably started 100. Yep. Right? And that's, you know, I remember one day I was sitting in an airport and this acquaintance of mine who was a big executive in the music business uh, saw me sitting in the airport, came over to say hello to me, and I was sitting there writing in my songwriting book. And uh, and I kept a journal. I wrote everything down. And I, I made a habit at the end of every song that I finished to write a little copyright symbol and the date, yep. tell a little bit about where I was when I wrote the song, and yep. then I would write my name, you know. And uh, and he looked down at my page, and he kind of smirked a little, and he said, what do you think, you're a professional? <laughs> you know, and it, it hurt my feelings. You know, wow. kind of hurt my feelings because I thought, well, that's kind of rude. Wow. But but over the years, as I look back on that, I, I realized there was a principle at work there. And the principle was that I was taking it seriously. That's right. Long long before anybody else took it seriously. Yeah. Your your mindset was, I am a songwriter. This is, what, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Uh, right. And, and that became, that came about. So. That's right. Wow. That's amazing. So uh, what actually inspired you to start writing songs? I mean, can you pinpoint yeah. it to one specific yeah, thing? Yeah, I can. Okay. Sure, I can. Yeah. Um, trauma. Mm. Really, I mean, it comes down to the word trauma, I think. Mm. Um, and trauma and, and, and uh, a, natural, uh, a natural love of music. So the short version of that story is that when I was growing up, I had some learning disabilities. I had a really tough time in school. I okay. had a really tough time reading. I had a tough time with math, spatial things. I had a really tough time with that. So when you're a kid growing up, you're a teenager, you know, you're looking for like, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? What, what is it that I could do that could help me find an identity, right? Mm. So uh, music was something that I just had, it came easier for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I drifted towards music as a kid because it was like something I could do at least. I could do that, right? Okay. So... Now, you know, fast forward, uh, I'm 18 years old almost, and, uh, and my, uh, my uh, adopted dad uh, commits suicide. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, two years prior to that, my birth father had been murdered by his business partner. Wow. My parents had been, you know, there'd been multiple marriages in my family. There'd been a lot of just unrest. And, and you know, probably the safest way to say what I... I, or the the most accurate thing to say is that as a kid growing up, a lot of times I I felt very unsafe. Mm. So mm. um, so then you know when your dad your dad who you love you know I call him my dad he's my adopted dad but when when your dad takes his life 
and then you're off to college two months later. Wow. You know, it's a lot, it's a lot to process. So yeah. in the middle of all of that, I had found this record, or the, I should say this record found me. Uh, it's a record. I actually, I have it right here. Uh, I keep it out because I know your audience can't see it, but. Right. Can you, can you see that? Uh, yes. Dan Fogelberg, yeah. Netherlands. Netherlands. Right. So um, imagine in the world of radio here for you folks who are listening at home, I'm standing in a department store and my heart is just broken. I've just buried my dad. Mm. And there, and, and I'm in there. I don't even know what I'm, I think I'm just wasting time at the mall. Right. Okay. And trying to sort my feelings out. And I look up across the room and I see this little record rack of records in a department store, which was unusual because normally department stores didn't sell LPs at the time. So I look across the room and there, you know, there must've been, you know, 30 rows of records, whatever, a small mm -hmm. rack, mm -hmm. but this album cover right here mm -hmm. with this face on it, you know, it, it, it seemed to capture how I was feeling. Okay. Just, and, and, and you know, for those of you who are listening on the radio, uh, don't, can't see what I'm talking about. Um, it's the album cover, cover for an album by Dan Fogelberg called Netherlands. And it's a, it's a kind of a, a shadowy face on the, on the cover and right. a, a guy in deep oh. thought. Yep. And it pretty much captured how I felt. So I didn't know who he was. I'd never heard of him before. Wow. I just went and bought the album. I took it home and, uh, you know, songs like, uh, Netherlands and, and once upon a time and lessons learned and love gone by and promises made and loose ends. I mean, these, these songs, as I had headed off to college, they, they, it was like, it was like they spoke at the deepest level you, that I could had ever experienced before of music touching my feelings mm. in the in the wake of this tragedies in my life, mm. and so my freshman year in, in college, uh, they had a coffee house on campus, and there was a couple of guys uh, that were that were really really talented singer songwriters that were students there, and I used to go down and watch them play, and I I think a guy named Scott Martin, man, he was amazing. Um, and I used to be so inspired by these guys. And so I thought, well, I'm going to get a guitar. Maybe, maybe I could play and sing like that, you know? Because mm. I thought to myself, if this music means so much to me, you know, inspired me to say, well, maybe I could write how I'm feeling too. So yeah. that's really where it started. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, what does that say about how important music is to us as a species? Yeah. That yeah. it has the power uh, literally to... Uh, to begin to heal someone. Yeah, you know, and it's funny. It, it, it's uh, it's not like the songs were, um, I think, you know, intended to bring healing. Right. They were, they were songs that just told the truth. Yeah. And gave words to whatever Dan Fogelberg was feeling. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the hallmarks of great art is that, you know, any number of different people can experience that art and apply it to their own lives. Yeah, that's right. Right. So, so these songs gave voice to my agony and my despair. Wow. And somehow they, they you know, it's kind of like the blues. Like people say, well, why is the blues such, why do people love the blues? It's such a downer music. No, well, you know, it gives voice. Right. To people's struggles. Yep. That's and, right. And there's something healing about that. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's very, very well put. Um, so your take on creativity in general, that does creativity 
exist and we as songwriters we're trying to find it or is it a combination of no we're we're creating something where where nothing was where does creativity come from hmm. in your in your mind in your yeah. opinion well that's a great question and if i had the answer um you know uh i'm sure a lot of people would be you know beating down my door you know uh for the magic dust or something but I, it, it, it's it's uh that's a great question. And the first thing that comes to my mind is something I read in a book by C.S. Lewis. He said, and I think he was talking about uh, spiritual things when he, when, he was, when he was writing this, which, you know, what could be more spiritual than writing a song? Mm. Um, but I don't think he had songwriting in mind or creativity in mind when he said this, but, but I think it's an apropos uh, metaphor. He said... If, and I paraphrase, if you want to get warm, you have to go close to the fire. Hmm. If you want to get wet, you have to step into the river. Right? So when you said, is it, you know, does it come to you? Do you go to it? I think, it, uh, I think it's all of that. Yeah. But, but I've, I've found that if you don't look for it, uh, it for me anyway, um, it's less robust. Yeah. So over the years, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got was to develop the habit of looking for it. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, like I, I can, like there's a song you and I wrote together, one of, mm. I hope, the first of many. Yes. Um, and uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say that we looked for that for That's well correct. over uh, probably two years. Yeah. That's correct. Maybe not, not every day, not every week, not every month, right. but as our schedules allowed, we, we looked for it. And I remember you and I having a conversation where we both said, and I'm paraphrasing, um, we'll know when it's right. Well, how will you know when it's right? I don't know. You'll have that same feeling you had when you first had the idea. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll feel, you'll feel a lump in your throat, uh, an itching in your feet, uh, a, 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 a burdening your chest, you know, yes. you'll know when it's right. And yes. And so I think the more you, you the more, if you want to feel that, uh, your chances are a lot better if you go looking for it, you know, and when you go looking for it, you, you, there's so many lessons to learn in all of that, but you know, it all starts like this, you know, longest journey starts with the first step, right? Yeah. So, yeah. uh, in my twenties, I started looking for it and, and I, and I, I don't know why. I just had a rabid passion for songwriting. I remember at one point, like these are things that other people probably may think sound crazy, but they're things I did. Uh, I remember walking into a bookstore in my early twenties, and uh, and you know I told you that I had a, a learning disability, mm -hmm. so I had trouble reading, and uh, and uh, so as a result, I I don't know. I'm one of those few kids probably who made it through high school without reading a book. Like wow. I don't ever remember reading a book. Wow. I mean, I read in books, but I never, like, I never read Steinbeck or Shakespeare or, I mean, I, I don't know how I got through high school without mm. doing those things. But um, in my early 20s, I had a pastor mentor, a friend of mine, who said that if I wanted to be in the top 1% of intellectuals in America, he said this in passing to me one day, all I needed to do was read a book a month. Mm. And I, I said to him, well, how do I read a book a month? He said, well... 
you pick up the book and you see how many pages are in it and you divide that by how many days there are in a month. And before you go to bed every night, you read that many pages. Right. So simple, right? So wow. kind of in the context of that, like I got turned on by this idea that, you know, maybe I could, maybe I could become a reader. You know, I'd never really, mm-hmm. I'd never really tried that before. So in, in that space, I found a book in a bookstore by a guy named George Seldes. I still have it. It's on my bookshelf. Mm. Um, and the book was called Great Thoughts. Okay. And I, I, for whatever reason, sort of like that Dan Fogelberg album caught my attention. It just, I, it, this book caught my attention when I walked by the bookshelf. And I walked by it. I remember it clear as a bell. I walked by it. Oh, another title. And something inside of me said, stop, wait, go back. So I stopped, wait, got back. I went and looked at it. And as I was standing there looking at it, I picked it up. And, and I heard something inside of me, like a feeling, not really a voice, mm-hmm. but a feeling inside of me said, if you want to think great thoughts, you have to read great thoughts. Mm. And then I thought, well, that's okay. Well, why don't I just buy this book? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, like, it's like I found a genie in a bottle, right? <laughs> so, so what the book is, is a book of quotes. Okay. And so I started a lifelong pursuit and passion of reading quote books. Wow. And where some people will read an, a novel, uh, you know, for, for their literary, literary entertainment, I'll pick up a quote book and I'll read a quote book, right? And so, I mean, just those kinds of habits, like this became a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to get this songwriter magazine and, you know, read it from cover to cover. And there was an article in there. It was probably 1994, maybe. Um, there was an article in there from with their interviewing Kenny Loggins. Okay, and they were talking to Kenny Loggins about, you know, uh, the creative process, mm. and and they asked him, you know, like what were some things you did that helped you develop your sense of melody. And he said he suggested that a good exercise would be to quit. Have people, you know, he's talking to potential songwriters who are reading this article. He said his invitation was to invite them to stop listening to radio. And any music mm. that had no music that has words, stop listening to any music that has words for a year. Do it wow. for a year. Wow. And I don't know why, but but sort of like when the pastor said, you know, you want to be in the top 1%, read, read a book a month. When I read that from Kenny Loggins, I thought, well, that's a fantastic idea. Right. <laughs> so so I, I dove in. And for almost two years, uh, if I could avoid it, I didn't listen to music with words. I, li- I listened to the classical station. I listened to the jazz station. I listened to this soft, you know, easy listening station that, yeah. that played a lot of instrumental music. And and over that course of two years, um, something happened in my awareness of melody. And mm. I, which does, you know, I'm not saying that to suggest that you know I'm a great melodist, but but I have a sense of melody and why it works and oh, what yeah. works about it oh, and yeah. how it works. Definitely, and you do. so. Well, you know, thank you. And but but I'm saying these were things that I did as a young man that I was attracted to, that I said yes to, and then I put my whole heart and soul into it right. and pursued it, you know. And uh you made these decisions. Yeah. You said I'm going to do this. Yes, I'm following that person's advice. I'm going to go for this. I'm following the advice in this book and you took and maybe some of that was your instinct or maybe some of yeah. that was whatever it is that, that, that you know within you, I need to do this. Yeah. Something told you, I need to follow this and, and go for it. 
Yeah. So that's how I, I was, you know, that's how I went forward. So, you know, to sort of put a wrap on that, um, you know, I got to Nashville. I got a publishing deal with Warner Brothers or Warner, Warner Chapel. Um, I was a staff writer there for, I think, eight or nine years. Uh, and and I went from only writing by myself for the most part. I would say 95% of the songs I wrote before I got to Nashville, I wrote by myself. Okay. To, to pretty much only co-writing. Mm. So in Nashville, you know, it was 90, 95% of the songs I wrote, I co-wrote. Okay. So, so now, you know, then fast forward through those years, left Nashville in 2012, came to Vegas. Um, for the most part, since I've gotten back, uh, since I've gotten away from Nashville, I've gotten to a place where I'm mostly again writing by myself. Mm-hmm. And what I've discovered is there was something about my original segment of my journey where I, all those years when I you know, pretty much only wrote by myself before I had a record deal or a publishing deal, before I had any hits, there was something about that place for me that was so unmanufactured. Uh, uh-huh. It was so just like open a vein, cut, you know, say how you're feeling, really get to the heart of it. That that somehow in the journey of being in Nashville, I hadn't lost that, but but I I wasn't digging for that. Yeah. Whereas you know, before I went to Nashville, I, I that was all I really dug for. Mm-hmm. So so coming to to Vegas and being back in Vegas, um. I, I have the perspective now of looking back over 30 years of doing this, yep. right? And and one of the th- voices that now I hear these days, because we've talked about, you know, the voices that you hear that say, go this way. Yep. One of the voices I heard was um, that, that that gear, although seldom used for the decade prior, was still there. And it was important for me to start looking for that more. Mm. And 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 seeking that pl- place, a passionate place, and so um, I have co-written some since I've been here. And you know, when you say it that way, it makes it sound like, well, then are are you all your songs serious and heavy and heartbroken or painful or no, no, some of them are just really funny, right? They make me laugh, but but there's a there's a a sensibility to them that is what feels right to me, right, and and rings my bell. And, and I feel passionate about it. And yeah, um, yeah, you know. So um, I've been starting to co-write with some people here. Uh, you are one of them. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. I don't think I've said this to you, but but I spent the last couple of days going going over that song, and uh, it so happens it's sort of the release of that song on your album has coincided with another project that I'm working on of sort of coalescing my catalog. Mm. So I've been really reviewing a lot of my older material and, and re- reflecting on it. And, uh, you know, one of the hallmarks for me of, a, of what I thought was a great song was, you know, when you write as many songs as, as songwriters do, um, you know, a lot of them you like, but, but you don't necessarily feel compelled to pick them up and play them for your friends. Sure. But every once in a while you have one that you think, okay, well, I can't wait to get in front of a group of people and play that for my friends. And for me, over the years, that's been a hallmark of a, a good a good sign of a, like, okay, there's one. Mm-hmm. Okay, the song that we wrote together does that for me. Wow, there's one. It's because it's just just moves. It really moves me. And and the feedback that we're getting from the album and different people have played it 
says it really moves them too. So um, yeah. I, I still want to co-write. You know, that being said, I still want to co-write. And you know, thank you to you for, for such an incredible invitation to be a part of that idea. Um, and, I, and I want to co-write, but you know, I'm not doing it now necessarily you know, for commercial results. Yeah. I'm, no, I'm doing I it more for that, that passion. Yeah, that that's that leads me and I appreciate that. Uh it was my honor to for us to write that song together. Um I wanna ask you just we have time for maybe one more question. I wanna ask you in regards to a young, the younger generation, um it's very everything is so accessible these days, right? Kids have tools that we didn't have growing up with yeah. YouTube and everything being at their fingertips. Um, but as a musician, as a songwriter, as an artist, it can become very easy to chase the sound of another person's artist, another artist's sound, right? And, yeah. and uh -huh. oh, I, I want to sound like that person. I want to sound like that person. What advice would you give to younger artists to, on how they find out who they are, who they are as an artist? How do I, how do I bring who I am out? As opposed know. to, you know, trying to sound yeah. like somebody yeah. else. Well, you know, the, the, let me say this. I, I think there's a tremendous amount of value in mimicry. Mm. There's so many lessons to learn. Mm -hmm. Right? And and I, I also want to say this, that I think every one of us has a unique journey towards blossoming. and But the blossoming comes in stages. You know, and I, there's no way it, it, it's even possible that I could have been the artist that I am now at 24. Right. Right. So right. I, I'm 60, I'm 61 now. And I still hear a voice whispering in my ear as I look over this new material that says, wow. I mean, literally, it's been really strong in me lately. It says, wow, you might finally be coming to a place where you can be your authentic voice. Mm. Mm. Right. So, but I'm 61 and I, and I've been mm. doing this full time, mm -hmm. full on with everything in me for three and a half decades. Right. So, you know, my, so that being said, those two things being said and true for me, if no, if for no one else, the, the best piece of advice I can give to any young person is go on the journey and mm -hmm. the journey will take you places and the journey will teach you lessons and your story will be different from mine but some of the principles will be the same and one of them is you know it's easier to steer a moving car yeah. so if you love to sing you want to write songs you have something in you that compels you to go forth and create you know then follow the advice of my grandma you know my grandma when i was a kid she said to me play if they like you play if they don't Play if they pay you. Play if they don't. Go play. Go play that. the music. Go seek the music. Go pursue the music. And she said, how old will you be in 10 years if you don't try? Mm-hmm. Right? You just, you just be 10 years older and be like the pig farmer who said, I, I always wanted to be a ballerina. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, um, I mean, it's silly, but, but, but the point is, is that, you know, if, if you feel this deep burden to sing, burdening and, and enlightening desire to, to do this, then do it. Go do it. Right? 
That's right. right? And, and, you know, um, hey, I mean, I copied a lot of people. James mm -hmm. Taylor, Jim Croce, you know, uh, to name a few. And I learned a lot, so much from them. Right. But I've been at this long enough now to where, for whatever reason, why it took me so long, maybe I'm a slow learner. But at 61, I finally feel like, oh, yeah, I actually, I'm not trying to be like anybody else anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm just being me. And there's pieces of all those influences in me. That's right. But somehow now, it's, it's coming to shape in a way that's authentically mine. Whether, whether anybody else you know, thinks it's commercial or not, for me, there's something deeply, richly satisfying about that. So I'd say don't worry about it so much. Okay. Back to your original question. Don't worry about it so much. Go. Just go. go. Go on Go. the journey and be creative. Do your thing. That's a yeah. that's a beautiful thought. I really appreciate that. Well, Michael, you are an incredible talent. You're a wonderful person, and uh, I'm honored that you uh, spoke with me today. Uh, how how do people get in touch with you? Uh, what's your website? How do people hear your music? So, best place to find me is on Facebook right now, okay. and on YouTube. You okay. can go to my official YouTube channel, which uh, I am putting new stuff on it every week. Awesome, awesome. Wow. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. I look forward to many more conversations and uh, many more songs that we'll write together. Okay, man. Have a great day and happy holidays. You too. Yeah, you too. You have been listening to the Chic Compass Connection podcast. To learn more about Chic Compass magazine, visit chiccompass.com. That's C-H-I-C-C-O-M-P-A-S-S.com. Thanks again to The Vegas Room for hosting us. Visit thevegasroom.com to find out more about this great supper club. This is Jamie Hosmer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>